It is easy in the world to live after the world's opinion. It is easy in solitude to live after our own. But the great man is he who in the midst of the crowd keeps with perfect sweetness the independence of solitude. Ralph Waldo Emerson Welcome to Two Guys Searching for Truth on the Road That Never Ends, where all things philosophy are discussed by your co-hosts Credo and Glaucon. And on this road that never ends, we'd like to bring you along to discuss ideas like the Socratic good life, Cartesian doubt, the mystery of the Tao, Buddhist enlightenment, and the very questions which cover what it means to exist as a person. It's the place where thoughts from the past live on eternally in the realm of great ideas and monumental thinkers, and where those ideas cross with the present day to give meaning and purpose to the world around us. Because after all, the unexamined life is not worth living. All right, so tonight we're going to talk about Spinoza again, and we're going to focus on his concept of God. Historically, people have called Spinoza a pantheist or a panentheist. A pantheist is a person who believes that God is equivalent to nature, or another way to think of it is the totality of reality. God is equivalent to the totality of what exists. A panentheist is someone who believes that God is in nature, so that God is not necessarily equivalent with nature, but God is in nature in a very real way. People have thought and argued that Spinoza is a panentheist, but I think after we talk about his concept of God today, uh, it'll make more sense to think of him as a pantheist. But that might not, at the end of the day, be exactly right either. It's not a kind of simplistic idea of pantheism that, that Spinoza is putting forward. There's a very specific reason for why Spinoza thinks about God and the way that he thinks about God. So that'll make more sense as we go here. So I think the best way to kind of get started thinking about Spinoza's ideas are to look at what he did in the ethics, and that's kind of what we're focused on today. And probably in our next episode is going to be what he did in the ethics. And so he starts off in part one talking about God, and he gives us some definitions. So a couple things to remember. One is that Spinoza is a rationalist, and as we mentioned before, he wants to be able to kind of axiomatically, deductively demonstrate what he thinks is the case. To do that in a real comprehensive and complete way, you need to have some kind of a first principle to work from, to start with, to be able to derive everything else from kind of like the Euclid's geometry, we talked about that before. And so he starts off by giving us some definitions. And the first definition is that by that which is self-caused, I mean that of which the essence involves existence, or that of which the nature is only conceivable as existent. All right, so that's already, and this is the thing about Spinoza, there's already a ton of stuff going on there in that one sentence. And it's also not super easy to just get it when you hear it. But so we're talking about 
something that is self-caused. And he's saying, what I mean by something that's self-caused, something that causes itself, is that I mean that of which the essence, the very nature of it, involves existence. Or that of which the nature is only conceivable as existent. So, if we think back to our prior episodes, this really sounds like what we said is the basic idea of the ontological argument. That God is a kind of thing that necessarily has as a property existence. So there's a similarity there. And then going on from there, he says, a thing is called finite after its kind. When it can be limited by another thing, this is definition number two, when it can be limited by another thing of the same nature. For instance, a body is called finite because we always conceive another greater body. So also a thought is limited by another thought, but a body is not limited by thought nor a thought by body. So here we have this idea that if we look out into the world, the physical world, there are physical things. And these physical things are limited by other physical things. So I can't put a car inside of another car. They're limited by each other physically. These things are limited by each other. The, the world of thoughts, that's not so clear. But if we think about the way math works, ideas can't just run into and over each other. They're limited in specific ways by each other. So that could be what Spinoza's talking about there, but we'll have to see. And then the other thing he mentions in that little definition is that thought and body don't interact. So my idea of a car and the car are not limited in the way that two cars would limit each other, two physical cars would limit each other, or two ideas of a car might limit each other. Going on from there, definition three gives us a definition of substance. It says, by substance, I mean that which is in itself and is conceived through itself. In other words, that of which a conception can be formed independently of any other conception. All right, so substance is a weird kind of idea. And if we think about Descartes' wax argument that we talked about, the wax changing and the nature of the wax as we perceive the wax, the properties that it has can change, but we assume that there's an underlying substance that remains the same. And so substance is that thing that other things are inhering in or in a sense, they're dependent on it. So if I'm looking at a coffee cup, it has certain properties. Those properties of that coffee cup that I perceive, the smoothness, the hardness, the color, the texture, those properties are in the substance that is the actual cup. I don't actually perceive the actual substance that is the cup but the cup would not be without that substance. And so let's just stop there for a moment. We've talked about the first three definitions. Any thoughts about those or ideas? So just trying to tie it into some other things that we've talked about, I thought it was very good that you went back to Anselm, especially how Anselm's key point was that God necessarily exists, that the property of God is existence. So for substance, though, just to kind of better understand this, is it kind of like 
the form in a way that like we recognize things by the amount of you know cupness a cup would have or how would you differentiate those two or maybe they're similar i think they're i think they're different and they're different in the sense that if we're looking at some object i mean one way to think about it is just like how we perceive things through our senses so we perceive things through our senses our five senses and that means that whenever we interact with the what we call the external world we're doing it in a mediated way mediated by our senses and what we're accessing when we do that we call properties of objects we never actually experience the substance itself on that argument on that argument that's not necessarily what spinoza thinks but we don't we don't really experience the substance we experience the properties of a substance but the properties of a substance which is like kind of what Descartes showed with the wax argument. We think that properties are in a substance that itself endures change. So when all the properties change, there's something underneath it that doesn't change. And that's the substance that those properties are in. So a way to think of it as different from a, a form. So for example, if we're talking about the idea of a circle, which Spinoza talks about, and then an actual circle. Those are both circles. One is in the physical world, one is in the mental world. And for Spinoza, those are both attributes of the one substance. So there, if we could say that there's a perfect idea of a circle, that's kind of equivalent to a form for Plato. But the idea of substance is more plastic, I think, than that. because, And it's also more basic. And in, for Spinoza, it's, it's also, you know, going to be like the ultimate, the first principle. But it's not the first principle in the way that forms are, really, I think, because, I mean, this is a great question, right? Because we're getting at the very nature of how difficult this stuff is, right? Because we're talking about existence itself, and we're talking about that thing that makes existence possible, that thing that everything else depends on, that thing that everything else is in, is kind of the idea of substance for Spinoza. And that's part of the reason why he says that, I mean that which is in itself and is conceived through itself. So you don't have to conceive a substance through something else, but any properties or anything like that are conceived through something else. But it is, it is a very kind of tricky concept and idea. And part of the reason why is because it, it is really trying to ask the question about the nature of existence, answer the question about the nature of existence. Yeah, I, I think what you're getting at too is that while there is overlap between the two, they're kind of used for different purposes in some ways too, right? Like you're saying, perfection is a little bit different than just the essence of something. Right. And because that's more how we perceive it rather than, you know, maybe what it kind of is. Yeah, it's it's tough. Right. Because on one hand, like if we, we, we talk about kind of the influence of Parmenides on Plato a while ago, this idea that the totality of existence doesn't actually change. It's perfect and immutable and changeless. And we kind of experience it as this changing thing, which is due to our finite nature, the way in which 
we think about things discursively. And I think that's definitely true, I think, in Spinoza's mind, too, that ultimately God or nature or the totality of existence is outside of time is changeless and perfect. And so perfect ideas and understanding God or nature or the totality of existence perfectly is going to in some way be like the forms inside of the forms like the form of a triangle inside of the form of the good. Mm. So there is a way in which they they are similar at the same time I think when we're trying to talk about substance in the way that we're thinking about it or the way that Spinoza wants us to think about it and really the Renaissance wants us to think about it then it is a little bit different than something like the form of the good but at the same time that idea is around and it's not separate from substance for Spinoza but it's maybe taken on a different kind of priority or something like that yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, they're both rationalists, right? So they're going to have some sort of overlapping fundamental belief in the way in which they want to, you know, build their philosophy around. So then I guess, so substance, when he says, I mean, that which is in itself and conceived through itself, it would have to be, as you mentioned, outside of space or outside of time, or it would have to have always been there, right? Like there is no time in which there was no substance. Right, right. And everything that exists depends on it. And so that is kind of, that starts to sound like something godlike, really. <laughs> you know, I mean, but in a way that is troubling to people that want to have a personal God, in a way that's troubling to people that want to have a kind of religious version of God quite often, right? Because a lot of religious versions of God entail a story about a relationship between us and God. And often, the story seems to be analogous to child and parent or something along those lines and you know and anthropomorphic in nature but when we talk about substance and we think of it being similar to god that seems really different from a person a personified god definitely different than that so then what about attributes and stuff you were talking about that where does he go from here so from here going on with these uh, definitions an attribute, he says, I mean that which the intellect perceives as constituting the essence of a substance. So that's a very abstract definition, but what attributes are, so attributes are ways of conceiving of or perceiving of the essence of a substance. So for example, we are able to access, for Spinoza, substance in two ways. One is through the mind with thoughts, the other is through our senses with the body or through corporeal, the corporeal nature of things. So we can interact with substance physically, corporeally, seeing it, tasting it, moving it around, weighing it. We can also interact with substance through ideas. And that is going to be, you know, the rationalist, like you said, he's a rationalist. So he's going to think that we can grasp reality through the realm of ideas like Plato and others, Descartes. And so there are two ways in which human beings can interact with substance. And those two things are the attributes of substance that we have access to. So we have access to 
the attribute of mind, and we have access to the attribute of body. And those are ways in which we can conceive of the universe, God, or nature. And going back to the ontological argument and the idea of God needing to be that than which none greater can be conceived, you know, as we heard from Anselm, that than which none greater can be conceived. So if it's that than which none greater can be conceived, uh, for Spinoza, that means logically we should assume that God has infinitely many attributes, not just two. We only have experienced the ability to experience two because of our limited nature. So if you really think about that, it's a pretty humbling idea <laughs> of, of our position in terms of our kind of ability to comprehend reality or God. We're able to comprehend the substance of the universe or God completely through the attribute of mind and through the attribute of body, potentially. We have the potential to do that for Spinoza. But we do not have access to basically the infinite, infinite amount of attributes that are, that are existing for God. So that's a very kind of interesting idea. So we, so we have a substance, and then that substance has attributes, which is the way in which we can conceive of that substance, and that is body and mind, corporeal and intellectual. Then we have the next definition, which is a mode, and he says, by mode, I mean the modification of substance, or that which exists in and is conceived through something other than itself. So here, we have something that has to be conceived in something else. So if we think about that, an example of a mode is a human being. So a human being is a mode of God, or a mode of the substance. So we're a way in which God is expressing itself. And so is my laptop, so is the tree outside, so is the cloud. These are modes of God. And they are things that depend on substance to exist and exist through substance because of substance, but do not exist in themselves. They are uh, not eternal, right? Human beings, clouds, laptops, and trees are not eternal. They arise and pass away. And that means they're not necessary things. They're contingent things. So they depend on something else. They depend on substance, the totality of nature, or God to exist for Spinoza. So human being, myself, I depend on the universe to exist is another way to say it, right? And I mean, it's, so it's pretty, in a sense, it's not controversial. <laughs> you know so we have infinitely many modes in the universe in other words we have there are infinite ways in which the universe expresses itself and so a human being so i i'm a way in which god is expressing itself a unique way in which god is expressing itself and outside of time i exist all at once Time is kind of something that happens because of my finite nature. It's a way in which I experience my life. 
but it may not be the way my life actually is. So, but that we don't have to go into that too much. But, <laughs> but uh, that's definitely a possibility. You know that I that I am, I am, and will always be a way in which the universe expressed itself. If Parmenides and Spinoza and maybe Plato are right that the universe, or the form of the good, or the first principle, doesn't actually change, is perfect and changeless. And we're, to the extent that we're real, for Plato, we're participating in it. And for Spinoza, that's also true. The part of us that is actually real, I mean, is going to be God, right? We are a part of God, and all modes are parts of God, and they are changeless, really, even though we experience change in time as we go through life. Yeah, I think one really interesting kind of backdrop of all this, and I like how Spinoza does this, we can see this both in this episode and the next one when we talk about it, but there's this way in which he can kind of persuade you with an idea that is extremely consistent, but there's like this internal inconsistency, but that's not inconsistent. So like one thing, you know, uh, like you're saying, we participate, you know, in the good, uh, as Plato would have said it, or we're somehow part godly, right? That we're a mode, we're an expression of God. So that makes us feel very unique, but at the same time, we're quite insignificant because there are infinite attributes of God that we cannot really you know, explore or know. And in the same way, God's not really a transcendental thing. It's not like the world was created, uh, including us, by God just for the sole reason of us, right? We're quite ins insignificant, but at the same way, we're also a unique way in which the universe expresses itself in time, which, I mean, I'm not for sure that there can be anything more significant than that. I think it's more about, you know, sometimes Spinoza, at least the way I'm seeing it, is it's not so much that we try to take the way we view the world and then understand what Spinoza saw, we, we have to kind of let go of that a little bit, step into Spinoza's world and kind of see the way in which he saw the world. And it becomes a lot more apparent rather than trying to put our fixed ideas on top of what he's saying. Uh, absolutely. That's absolutely right. And what's funny about Spinoza, right, is that he is so dedicated to doing this axiomatic logical process, very rational and deductive work the ethics, where he's starting with these axioms and definitions, just like a geometry textbook, really. <laughs> and so he's, you know, I think I'm sure it's Spinoza's mind, whether or not it's true is another question, could be true. He is the courageous philosopher who's putting his mind and his ideas to the test. And he's following logic where it leads him. You know, and that, that came out when we talked about his religious issues and thoughts before and how he said that, you know, he had carefully thought this stuff through and this is where he'd gotten. It's so interesting too, you know, you bring up his religious views and such, but again, kind of this consistent, inconsistent dialogue going on because in some ways, many of his ideas, including the ones you've mentioned, Christians and Judeo, you know, religious individuals wouldn't be opposed to it, right? It's not necessarily, like you said, some things are not really controversial, but then there are other aspects that are entirely controversial according to those religions, yet logically it would have to follow in the way that he's saying it. So it's just, it's interesting on several ways how he's doing that, creating this consistent slash inconsistency that I think is really sets him apart. 
No, absolutely. Absolutely. No, that's exactly right. And it is, it is really funny. And yeah, we'll see some more of that as we, as we go further on into this episode and into the next episode, I think. So going on from here, he says, by God, I mean a being absolutely infinite, that is a substance consisting of infinite attributes of which each expresses eternal and infinite essentiality. And this is what we said earlier. And then he gives us an explanation. I say absolutely infinite, not infinite after its kind. For of a thing infinite only after its kind, infinite attributes may be denied. But that which is absolutely infinite contains in its essence whatever expresses reality and involves no negation. So here we we see that we're talking about that than which none greater can be conceived, really. And going on from there, I'll just read a couple more definitions here. He says that that thing is called free, which exists solely for the necessity of its own nature and of which the action is determined by itself alone. On the other hand, that thing is necessary or rather constrained, which is determined by something external to itself to a fixed and definite method of existence or action. So if it's coming from myself, it's free. If it's coming from outside of me, it's not free. So that's something we'll have to hold on to and circle back to. But when we're talking about God being free, you can just imagine, right? If a substance is that thing which is conceived through itself and is not dependent on anything else, you can imagine that thing expressing itself completely and infinitely is kind of the nature of God. Right? The nature of God, or the universe, or reality as a totality, is to express itself infinitely and freely. It can't be constrained because it is the thing. Other things in God, modes, may have a different kind of lot in terms of freedom, <laughs> including ourselves. Right, And then... The last definition he has is by eternity, he says, by eternity I mean existence itself, insofar as it is conceived necessarily to follow solely from the definition of that which is eternal. Explanation. Existence of this kind is conceived as an eternal truth, like the essence of a thing, and therefore cannot be explained by means of continuance or time, though continuance may be conceived without a beginning or end. So, this is kind of what we were talking about, right? Because so here he's throwing in this time stuff. I mean, this is some pretty, pretty complicated and serious stuff when you think about it. Because what he's saying is that there, and, and there's something right about this, just given what we were saying a minute ago, that the nature of existence, you know, time may not be the way we think of it. Time is another aspect of the universe but when something occurs in the past for us it's always part of the universe and in a sense it's always happening uh, we don't have access to it anymore because of our finite nature our discursive nature in the same way that if i'm in ohio i'm not in venice italy and if I'm in the present, I'm not in the past, and I'm not in the future. I have the ability to move spatially to other places, but I can't be really two places at the same time. But temporal movement only occurs in one direction. So it's not that 
the past is no longer happening from the point of view of the universe. It's really that I no longer have access to it, but it is actually still happening is kind of the idea, you know, but it's obviously very complex idea. <laughs> you know, it's entirely consistent with his notion previously that you had mentioned uh, that we're always, you know, we are an expression of the universe, right? And it's just, I find it fascinating to think of, you know, our freedom or lack thereof is really just kind of like a limitation from his, his point of view, right? That even what we would call free will, according to him, even if we had what most people would understand to be free will, he would still see it as a limitation, right? I just think that's interesting because, again, he's thinking from the point of view of the universe. It's, it's just cool to step into his world because, you know, in, until you do it, you don't, really, um, you don't really see things that way. No, that's right. And it's really funny, right? Because our natural tendency, and we've talked about this before, I think, our natural tendency is to view ourselves as separate from the universe. And these kinds of entities that are in the universe, kind of participating in an experience of the universe, but not the universe. But uh, that's pretty clearly a mistaken view, <laughs> you know, because we are really we are intimately connected to and part of the universe. And so, in that sense, once again, it's not really a controversial thing to say that we are part of God in that sense, if we're gonna say that God is the totality of existence. If we're gonna say that God is that in which none greater can be conceived, then I think we have to say that everything that exists is in God. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> it's not gonna be separate from that in which none greater can be conceived. It's gonna be, if anything, it's gonna be all of it together as one thing like Spinoza's arguing here, really. I mean, it's kind of a logical consequence of the idea. Fundamentally, anything different would be a limitation on God, right? Yeah. I mean, you would basically be saying that there would be right. a point at which God ends, right? You, you know, right. to say that we're outside of it or something would literally mean that God would have contours or edges or something where we would pick up. Right. You said you can't put a car like in a car, right? There's gotta right. be some sort of way in which everything is kind of encompassed What's really cool, I think, is just not just the consistency with his own, you know, way in which he's presenting it. There's like consistency in the way in which we view the world, even though you don't really notice it until you start looking at it. And you're like, oh, wow, actually, that that's that's basically what he's saying, right? That, no, that's that right. even it kind of speaks to like a previous expression of yourself <laughs> in a way, right? No, that's right. And this is this is part of the really the genius of Spinoza, because he's actually arguing <laughs> Right, that we have to view God as a totality of reality, right? And and like we've been saying, but so like how he kind of does this is he says, first, right, he shows that there can't be like two substances. There has to be one substance. It can have two attributes, but there can't be two substances because then they'd be limiting each other, just like you just said, right? right. So so if that's the case, then we have to say, well, that everything that exists is basically that substance. That substance is everything that exists. So then God is everything that exists. You know? <laughs> it's it's pretty it's pretty funny. There can be no other, there can be no second substance, right? There can't be any other substance. There only there's only the one substance. So no, it is very interesting. And it's it's interesting in the way in which, you know, Descartes, obviously a contemporary of him, 
was quite different in this. And Descartes was actually, you know, respected by the church. Again, just kind of an interesting point on that. But, you know, for Spinoza, like you said, there's just one substance, you know, in the sense of even with mind and body, right? That these are just attributes of the same substance. But Descartes was not, you know, believing that, right? That instead there were mind and body and they were different, that they were different things, uh, what he called thinking stuff or extended stuff, right? So if, if, if we look back, for example, to when Descartes stated, I think, therefore I am, right? I think his idea there was to try and show how important thought is and that thought cannot be reduced to material substances. And this actually something that Spinoza would agree with, right? He would say that they can't be reduced to each other. Right. Um, but the big difference would be that Descartes would see them as two different almost parallel universes existing, I guess, within the universe. And then right. uh, Spinoza would see them as, as the same thing being expressed differently. But that sounds confusing. No, you're right. You're right. Because basically Descartes saying, and this is the whole idea, right? That there's two substances. There's mind and body. And what Spinoza is saying is, no, there's one substance. And there's infinitely many attributes, two of which we have access to, mind and body. And so the mind-body problem is kind of dealt with in that sense, in the simplistic kind of reading of that, by Spinoza's very approach of saying that there's one substance with two attributes that we have access to. Descartes wants to say that there are separate substances, then you have the problem of how do these things interact. And it's just what we were just saying a minute ago about the ability to impinge upon things. The ability to impinge upon things only happens if it's the same attribute for Spinoza. So one attribute can't really impinge on the other attribute. They're correlated. So the idea of a circle and a circle in the, in the physical world are correlated to each other. And there are ways in which you might be able to explain interaction, but it's not a causal interaction. The causal chain is within the attribute. So the physical attribute, the corporeal attribute has causal chains running through it. The mental attribute has causal chains running through it. And then it's still tricky to explain how they interact, but it's a lot less tricky than saying that you have a free soul in a determined body, right? Because that's kind of what Descartes saying that we want to preserve freedom. So we say that the soul is free. And I don't know if that's necessarily true about Descartes, because if we remember back when Descartes was talking about freedom, it was freedom to be good. It was not freedom to be indecisive or something like that. So it's not necessarily exactly right about Descartes. But the idea is that Descartes wants to say that the soul is free and the body is determined. And then that preserves human freedom. And there are various reasons we want to preserve human freedom. We'll talk about in our next episode, maybe. But when we're looking at Spinoza... He wants to bite the bullet and say, you know, <laughs> we're determined. I mean, we're, we are not free, really, in any sense of, like, existential freedom that, you know, the existentialists later are going to be saying we might have. We don't have any of that. We are bound in the universe to the causal principles of the universe, the, the rules and laws of nature, as it were, govern the universe and they govern us just as much as they govern the universe. And that goes back to what we were just saying a minute ago about this idea in which we like to view ourselves as separate from the universe rather than one with the universe. 
If we are really part of the universe, then any laws of nature have to govern us as well. Spinoza is going to argue, and I mean, it's not a bad argument, right? <laughs> <laughs> so that so we're going to be not really free in the way we think we are, at least. So it is it is interesting and and painful to think about sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, you you can see where where the church would be coming from too, right? I mean, in in many ways, saying that mind and body are the same even though they're the same substance but different attributes of one another kind of starts to i mean how do you resolve the issue of the soul at that point right because i mean there there couldn't be really a soul like leaving the physical body in the sense of like what you know christians at the time or even today would, would right. be thinking right or i mean i don't know how, how do you make sense of that it, it's a great great excellent question and so when people first heard Spinoza's idea, and I guess even afterwards, people often thought that he was a materialist because he's equating God with the totality of existence. But that doesn't really make sense if we understand Spinoza's basic idea of attributes, that there's mind and body, and there's actually infinitely many attributes. So God is much richer than we can conceive of. But the totality of physical stuff is one way to comprehend God or the universe. And the totality of mental stuff is another way to comprehend God. So in the sense that we have a mode, we are a mode of God, that mode, at least from our ability to see and understand things, has the attribute of body and mind. And I think it could have more, but it's an open question. But the, the modes that we are have the attributes of mind and body. The mind part of us has kind of traditionally been equated with the soul. The body part of us has been thought of as being the part that's kind of physical and subject to, uh, certainly for someone like Descartes, subject to death and deterioration in time. And the soul is more everlasting and then would go on when the body perishes. But for Spinoza, it's actually really different, right? Because both are actually, in a sense, perishing and not perishing. Both are, in a sense, eternal and everlasting, and at the same time, perishing in time. So it is, it is very interesting, right? Because I think there is a way in which we have a soul for Spinoza, and I think we might, we might have talked about it before, but it's like if we think about, from Spinoza's point of view, right, I live my life, and I do that when I live my life, I go through my kind of mode of existence, one kind of moment at a time, through time, which is what we call discursively. I go through time discursively, one step at a time, and I experience my life one moment after another after another, and then I die. But when I'm not in time, I can view my life as a totality. And not only view my life as a totality, I could experience my life as a totality, potentially. So once I die, a kind of fitting, fitting way for things to work out would be for me to experience my life as a totality for infinity. Now, if I've not lived well, then I would have to experience that for an infinite amount of time, or in, not really in time. I would have to experience it forever, but not in time. And so we can see how tricky this stuff gets. But it would be a way in which I'm immortal, 
because I will forever be a way in which the universe expressed itself uniquely. And I potentially have the ability to experience that as a totality when I'm no longer in time. So there are ways in which I think Spinoza could have something like a soul, but it's not going to be something like a soul in the Christian sense of the soul, but it still has an ethical dimension and uh, a dimension in terms of being everlasting in some way. Yeah, I mean, just to comment on the whole point about, you know, us being expressed uh, as kind of, like you said, eternal, but also temporary, right? It's interesting in the sense because this is, again, like I said, this whole inconsistency slash consistency point. Actually, I thought, you know, just as you were talking, I was thinking, you know, maybe this captures kind of what he's saying too. Even the word everything, as we use it, you know, in English, it, grammatically, it's it's a singular word, right? Now, this both goes to the unity that he's talking about, like one substance, everything being unified, but it also goes to the whole consistent slash inconsistent thing. Even the word universe, right? The Latin root of that would be uni, right? Or unis, one. Right. It, there's just something interesting about this, but, but to, to go on just a quick aside, so in, you know, thinking about this episode, I did a little bit of kind of looking into, because I, I started thinking, right, this is interesting. Because if we take this idea that there was no God that created everything, but instead there is this substance that is self-caused and exists through its own necessity, its own nature, how do we reconcile that with the Big Bang? Because essentially it forces us to, we're at a fork in the road, to either say that there was something at the time of the Big Bang or there was nothing, right? So I think it's interesting because what I'm about to mention on my findings is that it also goes to this notion of Spinoza using philosophy in a way to kind of reach scientific truths or beliefs that there's no way he would have had access to at the time, which isn't uncommon, by the way, and we've mentioned it on the show before. But so one thing is most leading scientists today are pretty much in agreement that material, like if we call, you know, physical matter, atoms, molecules, that kind of a thing, it probably didn't exist around the time of the Big Bang. Many would even say that it existed about thousands or maybe even hundreds of thousands of years afterwards. But smaller particles are pretty well understood to have been in existence at the time of the Big Bang. So particles that fuse to make atoms, right? So around one ten thousandth of a second after the Big Bang, the first protons and neutrons would have come into existence. So there was some sort of material, right? But what if you go back even just a little bit further, right? Back to the time of when quarks and the building blocks of protons and neutrons were formed. You know, what was there at that time, right? Interestingly enough, quantum field theory, right, shows us that in what they call empty space-time, it's full of physical activity in the form of energy fluctuations, which give rise to particles popping out and then disappearing shortly after. Right? It's not even just theoretical. We've actually been able to, to, to spot this in experiments. So I thought it was interesting because, you know, Spinoza, there's no way he would have, <laughs> would have known about quarks or anything at that time, right? But, but it's interesting that he could use this logic. It also gives some strong credence to rationalism in general, to uncovering truth. But, you know, maybe he was right after all. Maybe there always has been something there that led to the creation of basically everything that we know and experience today as the universe. Yeah, I mean, th this is a tough question. And really, it, it's not really answered even though you know we do talk about the Big Bang, and then there are other theories about the nature of reality and what it is for a universe to go into and out of existence. 
And if we're talking about universes going into and out of existence, right, we're talking about something like the Big Bang, but it happens if there are multiple universes existing, then there's something else that those universes are in or what's happening there, you know? <laughs> I mean, we don't really know. Well, and theories in physics, it's a very interesting thing, right? Physics is a very interesting thing, natural philosophy. It is often the case that these theories begin in a very philosophical way. I mean, I think that's the only way they can begin. And then the math is kind of flushed out once you have the philosophical idea, which is kind of what we're talking about with rationalism. And it's pretty clear reading through Spinoza's stuff that it's very kind of mathematical in nature, although it's linguistic, right? And so it is very similar, I think, to physics, right? <laughs> in that sense. <laughs> You know, and um, it is, it is, I think, still an unanswered question whether or not the universe is eternal or arises and passes away. You know, in Buddhism, right, I mean, I think, you know, you have this kind of idea that things arise and pass away. And I think we've talked about it before, right? It, it is feasible that the universe arises and passes away. If it arises and passes away, then we could have something like a Big Bang, but that doesn't really mean that it's uncaused or something like that. There's something causing it. And so that then is going to lead us back to this question we were talking about before with what's the real substance or what's, what is the substance? That thing that is kind of self-caused or something like that. You know, so I think we don't have the answers yet. And, you know, some people were talking about we're going to figure out what substance is with the, when they first made the giant collider. And it hasn't, it hasn't borne that fruit yet. And, you know, it may, it might produce it, but I think it's tricky, right? And it's tricky because of exactly what we're talking about with Spinoza and Descartes and these guys, <laughs> because really we're talking about what does it mean to say physical versus mental consciousness how and this is what we're you know when we, when we do an episode on heidegger and sartre what exactly is consciousness what priority or what role does consciousness play so for example when we talk about the physical world that's usually given priority by people including scientists quite often but the physical world does not occur anywhere else other than in consciousness so what's more basic in that is going to be consciousness. Consciousness is more basic than the physical world because the physical world only occurs in consciousness. So there's a weird way in which consciousness then becomes more basic. And a weird way in which we can say that, and this goes back to idealism versus dualism versus materialism and all that stuff, is that it's not so simple to kind of say, okay, look, we're going to figure out what substance is. This is going to give us the answer to what the material world is and all that stuff because we, don't, we haven't really figured out what it even means to say material world in consciousness yet. So that's still a philosophical puzzle. You know, some stuff to think about. So tonight we covered a lot of ground. That's a reflection of Spinoza himself. He set out with an incredible sweeping vision, 
and sought to define existence, the cosmos, and virtue in a single work. And he would say he did. Many would agree he did. We focus this episode on his ideas of God or nature. You know, those terms can be used interchangeably with him. Or substance. We also talked about attributes and modes and a little bit about his idea of freedom or his version of freedom and his kind of deterministic outlook towards free will. For Spinoza, God is substance. It's infinite, it's wholly positive, it's self-caused. Everything else, so everything we know and experience, absent from those times I guess we participate in the good, are finite. They're caused, they're the attributes and modes of substance. So at first glance, as we mentioned, it can seem a little abstract, but actually if you look at his arguments a little closely, I think you'll find yourself quickly immersed in some of the strongest rational arguments for the existence of God to have ever been put forth. So before opening this up to questions, there's an interesting quote that I'd like to present. So this comes in response to the common misconception that all things in nature act like humans with an end in view. Or take it a step further for Spinoza, the belief that God made man so that man might worship God. And in discussing how all men search or all humans search for a cause in things or how they look around and try to make sense of the world, Spinoza recognized that humans are aware they didn't create many of the things around them. But Spinoza says we should be more reflective. We should look beyond the notion that the whole of nature exists to provide us with convenience. He stated in the ethics, quote, Thus, the prejudice developed into superstition and took deep root in the human mind. And for this reason, everyone strove most zealously to understand and explain the final causes of things. But in their endeavor to show that nature does nothing in vain, i.e. nothing which is useless to man, they seem only to have demonstrated that nature, the gods, and men are all mad together. And so here Spinoza is basically saying that those who believe in final causes have created a new mode of argumentation, reduction, not to the impossible, but to ignorance. And so he goes on to warn us against this. He says, quote, they will pursue their questions from cause to cause till at least they take refuge in the will of God. In other words, the sanctuary of ignorance. So again, when they survey the frame of the human body, they are amazed. And being ignorant of the causes of so great a work of art, conclude, it has been fashioned, not mechanically, but by divine and supernatural skill, and has been so put together that one part shall not hurt another. Hence, anyone who seeks for the true causes of miracles and strives to understand natural phenomena as an intelligent being, and not to gaze at them like a fool, is set down and denounced as an impious heretic, by those who the masses adore as the interpreters of nature and the gods. Such persons know that, with the removal of ignorance, the wonder which forms their only available means for proving and preserving their authority would vanish also. So, just wanted to put that as a backdrop to pose this question. Keeping in mind what we've talked about so far with Spinoza and with Socrates, do you think that Spinoza and Socrates would have agreed on their definition of God? Would Socrates, for example, have subscribed to Spinoza's theology as he presented it in The Ethics? This is a great question, right? Because they're definitely connected in some way. And they definitely seem to be kind of in the same neighborhood in the forest. Kind of, <laughs> you know. And 
I think there are things they agree on. So for example, Plato and Socrates are going to argue that the true and the real and the good and the beautiful are all one thing. Spinoza is going to argue that virtue consists in understanding what is true. So in that sense, I think they're similar in the sense that they both think that knowledge is critical for virtue and for happiness. So they agree in that sense. They also agree in the ways we were talking about before in the sense that they both are kind of similar to Parmenides in the sense that there's one substance that's eternal and immutable and perfect and not changing. I think there is a difference in the way in which Plato and Socrates think about the good and the beautiful. Because I think for Socrates and Plato, they view the good and the beautiful as something that can just be perceived and seen by people. And that is like a northern star that you can follow and that can kind of guide you through life. You can keep it in view. And I think that Socrates and Plato are going to think that we're able to morally perfect ourselves in line with goodness. And part of that is going to involve wisdom and the intellect and an appreciation for the true, the good, and the beautiful. But I think it's a little bit different than Spinoza's concept there because Spinoza is going to feel like there is some superstition in that. And that's based just even just what you were saying a minute ago. Because he thinks that those kinds of ideas are imparting a little bit too much to God or reality or nature, you know? So I think, I think uh, there is a difference there. There are a lot of similarities. And maybe we'll talk a little bit more in our next episode about virtue and wisdom for Spinoza, at least a little bit. And maybe that'll be more clear then. But I think it, it is definitely, I think, different for Plato, the idea of the form of the good. It is, in a sense, the totality of the universe. That part's the same. It is actually what's real. And then, you know, similarly for Spinoza, we perceive a confused world, a world that's not completely true. And in that sense, not completely real. So, yeah, that's a, that's a great question, though. So just to kind of muddy the waters a little bit more before we get out of here, um, <laughs> if we think about AI, right, or creating a machine that can think to some degree, at least that's kind of what AI is, couldn't it be argued then that thinking is a physical process, at least in some ways in terms of the whole mind, body, slash physical, slash mental kind of debate? I mean... It's, it feels like this would go against both Spinoza and Descartes' belief, thinking that they're separate things, but it feels like if we could get a machine to think, I mean, would it kind of blend both in a way that, you know, I, I don't know where that leaves humanity. <laughs> 
So there, there is a whole branch of philosophy, philosophy of mind, uh, that deals with questions about consciousness, whether or not we're material, whether or not we're mental, and we've touched on it before. And when you're talking about building a computer that can think, you know, that can be conscious, that's an open question still, whether or not that's possible. And if it is possible, we still don't really know what it means or how to think about it. And so what I mean by that is if we build a computer that just runs on a program and it just does things step by step kind of mechanically, it could seem to be conscious. It could pass the Turing test, let's say. It could seem to be conscious, but it may not be conscious. It may just seem to be conscious. Being conscious might be might involve some other thing where we're able to kind of experience things in a certain kind of holistic way. As conscious beings, we seem to do that. We seem to experience things in a holistic way. On the other hand, AI seems to be making progress towards allowing computers to see things in that holistic way. But if computers are seeing things in that holistic way, they're not actually seeing things in the mechanical way anymore. They're actually seeing things more like we are. So <laughs> we're moving away from that kind of mechanical, mechanistic way in which like a robot would need to be, in that case, if we're talking about artificial intelligence, we would really be kind of giving rise to consciousness, if that's what's happening. Either we're giving rise to consciousness or we're not. If we are giving rise to consciousness, then it's still a question about whether or not consciousness supervenes on some kind of substratum. So for example, we have a biological body, and then does consciousness kind of supervene on that biological structure? Is it identical to that biological structure? Is it something different that's relational in nature? Like, does it exist in my relationship to the world and other beings? And is it even more complicated in the sense that I am relating to myself and then that's relating to the world? And when we're talking about other people, there's like three or four relations involved. And so there's all these questions about what exactly consciousness is and whether or not it can be reduced to a merely mechanical or physical expression. And then, you know, really, we haven't really made progress on answering the question because if we build a robot that is running on some physical system, it's just like us having a physical body. We haven't really, we haven't really just figured out what consciousness is necessarily. You know what I mean? So I think that there's plenty of room for questions of consciousness, even if we're successful with AI, even if we make something that then becomes conscious, right? If we have a situation where artificial intelligence becomes conscious, and you know, we've, I think pretty recently in the news, there have been people that work in various tech companies that have claimed that certain artificial intelligence programs they're working on are becoming conscious or are becoming self-aware or something of that nature. But there's a problem with that because we can't even tell if other people are conscious, <laughs> right? We really can't. I mean, we have, we have reason to think they are. We have, we have evidence to think that they are. And we really don't even know if there are other minds. I mean, you know, it's like the solipsism worry that I might be the only conscious thing in the universe and I'm kind of like <laughs> tricking myself by like generating these other things that I think are other, other conscious entities. So there, there are lots of 
potential worries there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no. Yeah, I appreciate you walking through that. I mean, we're literally back at the same Descartes and Spinoza split. I mean, there are others, of course, who, who have, you know, really good ideas on this too. But, but I hope in a similar way, I hope that these discussions help our listeners get closer to their own search for truth. And we thank you all for listening. And as always, we'll see you next time as we search for truth on the road that never ends. <laughs>